please continue to pray for that uh, situation. All right, uh, we're going to be continuing our series in the book of John, and we get uh, Andrew Hudson's going to be sharing tonight, so let's welcome Andrew. Hey, it is great to be with you guys tonight. Glad you guys made it. Is it getting foggy out there? It seemed like it was uh, misty the whole way driving here, but um, why don't I just start us off with prayer? I know we just did that, but hey, you can't pray enough, right? So, um, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I just, I ask that your presence would be here with us. Uh, we just give you our time tonight. And you know, as we've been in this series in, in the Gospel of John, I pray that we would experience your goodness and as Michael shared, the very first week of this series, this has stuck with me, the very first week, you know, the whole point of this is so that we might believe even more in you. So Lord, tonight as we look at this story that we're going to look at, and would you speak to our hearts, would it, would it drive us to believe in you more? Strengthen our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to start off by telling you about a story about a man named um, Frank Caprio. Frank is uh, not DiCaprio, not related to the actor, or Leonardo or whatever, but Frank Caprio is an 80-year-old uh, municipal court judge in Providence, Rhode Island. And he's been a judge for the last 32 years, and even though he's been doing it for a long time, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't see a lot of high-profile pro, court cases. Most of the time, he spends time just handling parking tickets. Um, so I doubt he's probably on anybody's short list for the next Supreme Court justice. But, but there's an interesting thing that happened with Judge Caprio about a year ago. He was, uh, they were videotaping a case that he got by a woman named, her name was Andrea Rogers. And uh, she had accrued like $400 in parking tickets. And, um, and uh, this case was videotaped and it basically went viral on the internet I think 170 million people watched this case because of how he handled the situation. How he, how he, how the way that he chose to see her in her particular situation uh, just was not what we would expect from a judge. So I actually want to show you a clip from this video. So it's just a couple minute clip. They're going to, if you want to go ahead and play Come on, Your Honor. Andrew, you have four different registrations. You have five tickets that go back to 2004, 2005, and 2006. Can you prosecute those tickets? No, Your Honor, not from 04, 05. Um, we won't even have copies of those, Your Honor. Those matters are going to be dismissed. I wasn't aware of them. Anyway, I'm sorry. Well, I Thank would, you. The issue isn't whether you are aware of them. The issue is whether or not they were placed on the vehicle, and they yeah. were. At the time, you were living on 9th Street in Woonsocket. We're keeping track of you. <laughs> then you got a ticket on Friendship Street in 2008. That was a parking meter on Friendship Street. That's going to cost you $25. Then you have a parking meter in 2014 on Friendship Street. It's going to cost you $25. <clears throat> so, so far you're doing pretty good because all you got is $50. And now you have four parking tickets. Are you talking about the most recent ones? Most now? recent ones, right. All right. The on one on, on 11 the, on one. the Nissan. Yeah, the one on 11 one, I went to Social Security because they had cut my check. Because my son was recently killed last year. So they cut my check 
because who? he had old money. Who? My son was oh. killed March of last year, right? So I was his rep payee. So they took my money because he had old money. So I had to go to Social Security to fix that matter. When I came out, my, I had a ticket. Then another time on the 5th, the pocket meter wasn't working. I have the picture for that. On 1-4, I was at court because my uh, landlord was trying to evict me. So I was at eviction court. Come out, I got a ticket. Mind you, he won possession of the apartment, so I had to move. So I got a ticket, he won possession of the apartment. Then I get another one because I tried to go to the legal services to try to get help to fix this. I go get some change out of Dunkin' Donuts, come out, I got a $100 ticket. What was the... What was the situation with the mix-up in Social Security with your son? My son was killed last year, March of last year. They said that he owed $75 of overpayment from May of 2016. Mind you, he was already deceased at that time. So what they did was they stopped my whole check until I went in there to fix the problem. So when I came out, I had a pocket ticket. All right, all right, all right, all right. <clears throat> I've had a tough year already. You know, I, I really, I'm on SSDI. I don't, I don't have $400 to give you on top of whatever else. I really do. I just had to come up with money for a new apartment. I'm still paying Russell and Boyle for my son's funeral. Like, I, I don't know where this money's supposed to come from. I wish I would have got my brother that night and he wouldn't have killed my son. That's why my son's gone. I'm just really having a tough time, Your Honor. I think we can all express our sympathy to you and understand the trauma that you have experienced. I'm still going back and forth to court for that. It's still emotions and I'm going to take all of the uh, circumstances that you just have explained to me into consideration and see if I can balance the equities to protect the interests of the city and take into consideration, you know, the horrific story that you just told us relative to your son. I don't think anyone in their lifetime would ever want to experience that, so. It's the worst feeling in the world. I feel so empty, Lord. I'm going to reduce this to uh, $50. How much time do you need to pay it? I have it on me now. All right. That's not going to leave you without any money, is it? I'll leave it with $5. Thank you, Ronda. I'm not going to leave you with $5. I'm not going to leave you. I'm I'm going to dismiss everything. Thank you. All right. With our best wishes and hope that things turn around good for you. Okay. Good good luck to you. you. Good luck. Yeah. Isn't that a cool story? Like, I mean, 
I mean, I love it how he, at first he's like, he, he lowers it to 50 and then he asks her, you know, finds out that that's only going to leave her with $5. And, he, and he's like, then, then I'm not even going to do that. I'm just going to wipe it completely clean. You know, what is it that, that grabs our attention about that? Like a judge like this, what's so drawing in? I think it's the idea that, the idea of a compassionate judge sounds kind of like an oxymoron. <laughs> like it seems like those words don't go together. Like a judge in our minds, I think, is someone who's supposed to be uh, emotionless and, and just a rule follower and no excuses, no exceptions, you know, no, no, no individual circumstances. And yet here we see an example of a judge who's merciful and compassionate and goes out of his way to bless this woman. The story also brings to light, I think, to the fact that, that this judge's response is so rare in our society that we live in a very condemning culture. It seems like on social media, on news talk shows, just even in face-to-face interactions with people, people can be so quick to throw other people under the bus, so quick to bang the gavel and condemn them without even listening to their story, without even hearing their, their explanation, without even trying to empathize. And I think on the flip side is that, is that so many of us are, are so kind of disgusted when we see people bashing other people like this that, that we decide that we don't want to judge anyone at any time. That we go to the other side of the extreme and we feel like we can't say anything at all that challenges someone or judges their decisions for fear of being insensitive or unloving. And so we, we create this culture unintentionally of silence where we basically condone everything under the sun and everybody does what's right in their own eyes. And even though most of us will never be courtroom judges, I know that, uh, if we think that we can just avoid this problem and leave it for others to figure out, I think we're kidding ourselves. Because we are, in situa- we are all in situations at times where we need to make judgments. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. On a daily basis, I have to judge and make decisions between my kids. Well, he took this from me, or I had this first, or, well, let's, hear, let's figure this out. Okay, who had it first? Da, da, da. Okay, you owe them an apology. You know, you need to wait your turn constantly, constantly. If you're a, if you're a manager, you know, or a leader at the school PTO, if, even if you're just a good friend, and I think that we all are a good friend to somebody, then that means that, that we're at times in a situation where we have authority in people's lives and we have a voice in their ear and when we see them going down a road that's dangerous, when we see them sinning, that we have have an opportunity to respond and we can either condemn them or we can condone them but I don't think either of those are what God would want for us. What if there was a third option? What if there was a third option? I think that what we're going to look at the story today is we're going to look in this story in this gospel of John in chapter 8 where basically Jesus is, is thrown onto the judicial bench and handed a gavel. And he is given this choice, condemn or condone, you pick. And we'll see today that he, he has another third choice that we can make. And not only is it helpful for us, I think it's biblical for us to learn and look at this model. So let's, 
Let's look at first, or in John 8, starting off in, in very first, verse 2, excuse me, in verse 2. This is often called the story of the adulterous woman in your, in your Bible, if you want to, if you see that on top. So John 8, verse 2, you can follow along on the screens, or if you have a phone or a Bible, old school Bible. Uh, let's read this. Now, verse 2, at dawn, he, talking about Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Let's stop right there. The first point in your notes that I want to make is that Jesus judges with justice. Jesus judges with justice. And by the word justice, I simply mean fairness, that he's fair, that he's unbiased, that he's not conniving or manipulative or corrupt, that he isn't using this woman as a pawn for his own gain. See, prior to this story, the Pharisees had been growing pretty upset with Jesus. They were getting tired of him. He, he wasn't doing things the way that they liked. Uh, he was making these claims like, I'm the, you know, I'm, I'm living water. I'm the bread of life. And they just didn't like it. And they had come up with this master manipulative plan to catch him to make him, to get him caught in trouble. And Jesus is in the temple courts and he's, it's early in the morning and this large crowd is gathered around him to hear him preach again because they just can't get enough of his, of his wisdom, of his teaching. And they interrupt and they bring in this woman who was probably likely a prostitute that had been caught in the act of adultery in front of all these witnesses. Now imagine if that happened today. Imagine if that happened today. Imagine if we were gathered together on a weekend like right now and all of a sudden those doors banged open and a group of men came through those doors and walked up this aisle and they dragged this woman by her shirt collar up these steps, kicking and screaming, you know, crying and makeup just pouring down her face and they stood her up here in front of us all and they told all of us about her sin. And they humiliated her. And they shamed her. And then they, they wanted Jesus to condemn her to death. All because they wanted to trap Jesus. It really had nothing to do with her. All because they were trying to get back at him. And what was the trap? What was the trap they were trying to do? See, if Jesus does not agree to condemn her to die, then he's essentially condoning her actions. And then Jesus would be going against the Torah law. And he would lose his authority and following in the eyes of the Jewish people. And they would win. They would get rid of him. But if he does condemn her to die, the Pharisees could turn him over to the Romans. Because it was against Roman law to put a woman to death for this. They could hold Jesus without trial for execution. And they win again. They've got Jesus in this seemingly impossible situation. 
this unjust, unfair situation. And the Pharisees, they, they care nothing for this woman. Nothing. Nothing for this woman. They're using her like bait. They care nothing about being sensitive to her. They have no problem just humiliating her and shaming her. And they know the Old Testament law. They know that it does say, it does say that a person convicted of committing adultery does deserve to be put to death. It says it in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 22 and in Leviticus chapter 20. But it's interesting though, it doesn't specify that they must die by stoning like the Pharisees claimed. And they also conveniently leave out the part about both the woman and the man are to be put to death. There's no mention, no mention of the man involved in this story. By definition, you know, Adultery involves two people. And yet this man, or maybe it may have been more than one man over time, seemed to have gotten off free of charge. And it seems like the Pharisees have decided that they have all the power to choose who to judge and who not to judge. And by definition, they are being unfair. They are being unjust. And the reality of The reality is that some form of this woman's story has played out for centuries. It's played out for centuries to countless thousands of women. And I'm not saying this woman was innocent. She she has a responsibility and ownership over her sin. And Jesus points that out later in the story. But, But women have been treated as property, as less than, belittled, forced into sex trade and prostitution for thousands of years. And in this story, there is this unfairness and this bias continues. And all those around her, all those around her, they they seem to be indifferent towards her suffering and indifferent towards her humiliation. They do nothing all except for one, Jesus. Jesus speaks on her behalf. Notice he never excuses her behavior. In fact, he will challenge her in the end, but to, to take responsibility, but he will not stand by and let the defenseless go undefended. He will not do it. But at first it appears like Jesus almost ignores them. He, he's down in the dirt, like he doesn't even hear them. And he's writing something in the sand with his finger and scripture doesn't tell us what he's writing. It doesn't say, but, but many scholars speculate that he might have been writing some words from the Torah from the Old Testament. But look what Alexander Venter says, a vineyard pastor uh, from South Africa believes about this verse. Put up that quote. He says this about this passage. He says, I think that because of the sudden disruption, Jesus stopped and stooped to wait on his father to know what to say. He had learned not to be rushed into doing anything on his own initiative, but to wait for his father's initiative. Venter goes on to say that he essentially thinks that Jesus was probably just doodling in the sand, biding time while he listened for what God told him to say, for what God told him to do. And I don't know about you, but I know for me, often the times I regret decisions I've made, it's almost always because I made them too hastily. It's almost because I, I wanted to fix it, solve it, figure it out right then and jumped into it. And if I could go back and wait on God 
and ask God, I, I often wonder if I have a lot less regrets. To us today, it challenges us to honestly reflect on our own reactions to other people and to invite God to search us, to reveal to us if we're treating anyone unjustly, unfairly, if, if we're unintentionally holding particular people to a high standard while we let others go by like it's no big deal. As a, as a parent, I know I have to often check myself with my three kids. Am I, am I disciplining them all fairly? Or am I showing favoritism in any way? And the same could be true for my students at school or your coworkers or family members. Jesus is inviting us to look at any biases that we might have and how we're judging or not judging those around us. And Jesus always judges with justice. He always judges with justice. Let's go back to verse 7 and keep reading in the story. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard him again, heard him, who heard, I'm sorry, at those, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. See, not only does Jesus bring justice back into the discussion, he also brings humility. Humility. And that's the next point in your notes. Jesus judges with humility. When the Pharisees keep bugging him and keep pressing, Jesus looks up and he he makes this most profound statement. Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And it's like, bam. They don't know what to say. It completes, completely puts them in their place. He challenges them to look at their own lives and humble themselves because they too were sinners. Therefore, they have forfeited their legitimate right to stone her. Jesus, he convicts these accusing Pharisees by calling out their own hypocrisy. You want to condemn this woman who's a sinner? Then you basically are signing your own judgment sentence. This goes right along with the the same kind of thinking that Jesus talks about in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 7, he says this, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured against you or to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, "Let let me take that speck out of your eye? When all the time there's a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus is saying that however you choose to judge, that's the same standard I'm going to hold you to. So instead of condemning your sister right here, why not humbly take a look at your own life first, your own sin first? Not only does Jesus humble them with his spoken words, but most likely with his written words. Here's what I mean by that. See, after Jesus made this powerful statement, you know, let you who is without sin throw the first stone, what does he do? He kneels back down in the sand and starts to write again. And interestingly here, most scholars don't think that he was writing the Torah or doodling. They think that, and even later manuscripts add in, that Jesus was probably actually writing the sins 
of those who were accusing this woman. That he, that, that time where he was listening to the father, he was actually getting specific sins that those men had done downloaded to him prophetically in writing them in the sand. Things they thought they had gotten away with. Things they thought nobody knew about. But God knows. And he's calling them out. I can't imagine what it would be like to see, you know, their jaws just dropping open. How did he know? And one by one by one, they start to walk away. Till there's nobody left. It's just Jesus and this woman. And I think just the symbolism of of Jesus' body language alone is, is really profound here. You know, the whole time these men are standing over this woman asking for her death, what's he doing? He's kneeling. Kneeling has always been, always been a sign of humility. He's modeling for them what it looks like to be humble. Even though he doesn't need to be. He's the only person who's never needed to be. You know, at various points in our lives, I think we're all in situations where we could choose to or choose not to be like these accusing men. Where we, we know someone's sin. Where we could declare to the world their adultery or their lying or their, you, you, pick, you pick a sin. And Jesus reminds us in this passage that before you bang the gavel and humiliate this person to the whole world, Jesus reminds us to first take a look in the mirror. Take a good long look at our own reflection. To see our own sin and realize it's just as ugly as theirs. You know, my sin doesn't weigh any less as a person standing up here on stage as this adulterous woman sinned in. I'm no better. I'm no different. So how, how do we judge others with the humility? How do we do that? I think the answer to overcoming our hypocrisy is to regularly allow ourselves to come under Jesus' humility. To allow the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts and to gently convict us. Jesus reminds us that if we want to be followers of His, if we're serious about this, then at times we're going to have to do some hard work and sometimes some painful work of allowing God to search our hearts like the psalmist David writes. Search me, O oh God. To be first willing to, to work on taking the plank of wood out of our own eye rather than trying to humiliate our brother or sister for the speck in theirs. It reminds me of, of the great theologian Michael Jackson. You know, you know the song where he says, take a look in the mirror and make a change. <laughs> well, that, wasn't in my, that wasn't even in my notes. That's good. All right, you'll do that again. Okay. Now, now let's, let's see what happens at the end. Let's keep going. Let's see what happens at the end. This is the best part, the best part of the story. It says in verse 10, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, Go now and leave your life of sin. I love it, I love it, I love it. He says, woman, if I talked to my wife like that, I'd be sleeping on the couch for a week. <laughs> right, honey, you're back. <laughs> but in Jesus' time, this was not some impolite way, or, you know, rude way of, of talking to a female. In fact, Jesus refers to his own mother like this. 
earlier in John where in the story of turning water into wine. So it's, it's more of a phrase of like, ma'am, it's a sign of respect. He's showing her respect. But Jesus stands up, looks at this woman and invites her to realize that her accusers are gone. That no one is here to condemn her anymore, to shame her anymore, to humiliate her more. It's just Jesus and her. The only sinless person who ever lived right beside her. The only person who actually has a right to condemn her. Who actually has a right to throw stones. Chooses not to. Then neither do I, he says. Jesus demonstrates mercy and he saves her. Third, the third point in your notes is this, that Jesus judges with mercy. He judges with mercy. Earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus tells us in John 3.17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. To condemn this woman would go against Jesus' whole point in coming. His whole point in being here. To save her, to save us. But what I also love about this part of the story is that Jesus isn't just merciful to the adulterous woman. He's also merciful to these accusing men. He is. See, when Jesus writes their sins in the dirt, and they all leave, and then he stands up to talk to the woman, what do you think happened to the, to the writing in the sand as his robe and his sandals shuffled over it and kicked it around? Or at least, even if he didn't do that, at least as the wind started to blow and scattered those words and sand all around. See, Jesus, he didn't write their, their sins on paper or in permanent stone. He wrote it in one of the most erodible materials our world has. And it's, it's symbolic that, that he forgives them as well. That he's merciful to them as well. That he has forgotten their sins as well. There's mercy for everybody in the story. A few Decembers ago, a couple years ago, Sarah, my wife, was heading down to Columbus to go to her sister's. Um, she had two of our kids. One, I was home with one who was sick. But uh, our niece had a birthday party. She was driving down Cleveland Avenue, uh, just kind of around 270 north on the north side of town. And, and this woman in a minivan pulls out of an apartment, her apartment complex, and doesn't look left. And just drives right into my wife's van, right by the front right tire. Now, thankfully, they weren't going too fast, so nobody was hurt. But they, you know, if you've ever been in an accident, like even if it's a small accident, you're all shook up at the end. It's like hard to kind of know what to do. And they decide to pull the cars over to the side of the road, get out of the main part of the road. And the the other woman's car was just had kind of a little dent in the front, nothing major. But my wife's turning as hard to the left as possible to to just get it to go straight. And they get over the side of the road and they, you know, they, they have a con- start to have a conversation and immediately my wife realizes this woman knows no English. She knows no English. She only speaks Spanish. And um, she's got four kids in the van, this other woman. And the oldest is about 10 and probably because she's in public school, she, she, she can speak English and so she becomes their translator. And so they start to talk a little bit about what happened and the woman's real apologetic and saying, sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. 
And Sarah asked her, you know, you know, you know, about insurance. And do you have insurance? And the woman says, no, I don't have insurance. And Sarah thinks, oh, I don't know what to do. I guess we definitely need to, we need to call the police then. And, and at that suggestion, the woman begins to panic. I mean, she is all out panicking. Please don't call the police. Please don't call the police. So Sarah doesn't know what to do. So she thinks and she, she decides, she realizes, I'm going to call my dad. My dad is at the party about a mile away. So within a minute, he's there. He'll know what to do. So his, his name, coincidentally, is John. So John shows up and... Uh, they, um, and John starts to begin a conversation with the, with the woman. He says, you, you really don't have insurance? No. You do know it's against the law to not have insurance. Yeah. You should really get insurance. <laughs> John's kind of blunt sometimes. But they don't know what to do, so they go around behind the back of the van to kind of talk privately, and Sarah says to her dad, she says, Dad, I don't know if, if I should do the right thing, meaning like the proper thing, like, she called the police, have this woman cited. That's the, that's the right thing to do. Or if I should do what God wants me to do. And when they retell the story, uh, they both say, that John even says, I didn't know what I was going to do. But as soon as Sarah asked that, as soon as Sarah said that, I knew exactly what to do. So he walks right around to the other side of the van and, and goes right up to the woman and says, are you a Christian? Again, he's pretty blunt, like I said. <laughs> Are you a Christian? And the woman says, yeah, I'm, I'm Catholic. And he says to her, then, then we serve the same God. And because of the amazing amount of mercy God has shown me, I am going to extend to you the same amount of mercy. And I'm going to pay for all of this. I'm going to pay for all of this. And I think they knew by the way the van was driving, it was not going to be cheap. And when, when it repairs and, you know, labor and all that, it came, it came into the thousands of dollars to fix our van. And he paid for it all. And says he never regretted it. Isn't that, ama- isn't that amazing mercy? That's, I mean, that is amazing mercy. It's amazing mercy. Sarah like Jesus, was put into this pretty challenging position where she had the right to judge. She had the right to throw stones at this woman. This immigrant mother of four four was at fault. She messed up. But instead of quickly condemning her, she called on her dad, just like Jesus called on his dad. Show me what to do. I am convinced, I am convinced that the more we, are tr- we truly get in touch with how much mercy God has extended us, the more mercy we are able to extend to others. Amen. When, I, when I see someone respond in our th- authentic mercy towards someone, an authentic, I, see, I don't see a person who's a pushover, who's a coward, who's a wimp, who just doesn't want to deal with the situation. I see a person who is in touch and understands the amazing amount of mercy that God has given them. And when I see someone who on the other side of the spectrum has trouble showing mercy, who's overly critical, who, who holds on to grudges for a long time, I, I would challenge that person to examine if they understand how much mercy God has shown them. 
But Sarah and her dad, they did not condone this woman's actions. They didn't say no big deal. They, you know, they were adamant that this mother needs to get insurance. But they still showed mercy. And I love at the very end of this story that Jesus, he doesn't condone this woman's behavior either. It's not like it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. It's all good. No. Jesus' decision to not condemn her was a very costly decision. Jesus knew he could not break the Torah law, that someone would have to pay the price for this woman's sin. But he was willing to make that payment himself. The repairs that our van needed had to be paid by somebody. It was either going to be paid by us, by this woman, by, our insur- by an insurance company. But my father-in-law decided that he would pay that debt. Because Jesus knew forgiving this woman would eventually lead to the cross. That our sins would eventually lead him to the cross. We should not take it for granted or abuse it. I love the line where Jesus tells the woman at the end in verse 11 where he says, Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus challenges her. No, actually he commands her. He commands her to stop sinning. To stop committing adultery. God's mercy and forgiveness, they're free. But that doesn't mean it's cheap. We have to learn to acknowledge that. And we have to step in to the plan that God has for us. And interestingly, over the last few weeks, as I began to pray about this passage, knowing I was going to preach on it, I just kept these three words, justice and mercy and humility, kept just rattling around in my brain. Every time I would read the story, that's what would come up. That's what would come up. And two weekends ago, we had the men's conference here. I know a lot of you men were here. And, and I, walk in, I walked into that the first night, and that was the, those words were just going through my mind. And Stephen Van Dopp facilitated that uh, event, and, and his key verse, and a verse I'd heard many times, was Micah 6.8. It says this, it says, What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And my mind went... It's like, God, that's what you require of us. That's it. Those three things. Justice, mercy, humility. To wrap it up, what does God want us to learn about Him from this story? What does He want us to learn? I think it's this. That it's, you can go ahead and put the next slide up. It is not God's desire to condemn or condone but rather to bring correction to all of His children. It is not God's desire to condemn or condone, but to bring correction to all of us. This is what Jesus does in the story. When we follow His example, when we act like His disciples, what are these results? What does it look like? Go ahead and put up that diagram there. Imagine, imagine this, is, this is a road going down the middle, and I... I grew up in the country, and so two-lane roads were really kind of like one-lane roads. <laughs> and there was real steep ditches on the side, and if you weren't paying attention, even on the good days, uh, you were going off the side. But, but look at this. If we, if we judge people and decisions with uh, the heart of God, of correction, 
then what does that bring? That brings healing to people. That brings, you know, restored relationship with God and others. But if we, if we veer off to the left too often, if we're quick to condemn people, that leads to humiliation. And it ends up separating people. I think I'm supposed to say separating from others. Separation from others. Like we get separated from those other people because, because you don't want to be around people who are condemning you don't want to be in relationship with people who are condemning you. So it, it, it creates broken relationships. Or if we veer the opposite direction, if, if, we'd never, if we always just want to condone everything and say everything's okay, well, that leads to like self-destruction. That leads to people you know, not living holy li- lives. That leads to, to, to chaos. And it leads to people walking away from God. And so God has called us to, to go down this path to judge people and situations with the heart of correction, with justice, with humility, with mercy. So here's the question I want to end with. We need to ask ourselves, are we, are we driving off the road? Are we driving off the road? Do you tend to find yourself condemning others often? Even if it's just in our minds. Or do you go the opposite way? Do you tend to to go along with everything and condone others' actions out of fear? See, I believe many of us are off the road. Or at least we are driving too close to the edge. And many of us know that we tend to lean one way or the other too much. But I think that God, God is, this is an opportunity for God to put some on-ramps for, to let us get back on the road. And it's an invitation for us to give God access to build some guardrails for us. And by that I mean allowing access of the Holy Spirit to search us regularly and convict us lovingly and gently to stay on this path of justice and mercy and humility. Why don't you stand up with me here for a second? We're going to end off here in a second. If you're visiting tonight, we always like to end our service with an opportunity to respond. And I want to invite a few people to come forward and get prayer tonight for a few different things. And I know this was kind of a heavy talk. This is a hard topic. I was like, oh, I got, I got John 8. <laughs> it's a hard story. But I, th- I think it's an opportunity for us to really experience some of this stuff, some of God's mercy. So the first group I want to invite up is 